Welcome to the RUF Berkeley podcast. RUF is a campus fellowship centered around experiencing and expressing the love of God to our campus, our classmates, and our community. For more information, check out our website at rufberkeley.com or find us on Instagram at rufberkeley. Um, I'll be reading scripture for today. Um, so we're reading 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 20, and then Revelations 21, 1 through 5a. Um, so I'm going to read 1 Corinthians first. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then that then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and for your and your faith is in vain. We are now even found to be misinterpreting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people who most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then Revelations 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride, a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throng saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. So originally I had planned that the last sermon in this series would be on uh, glorification. And... um the reason why I initially had it that way was because um, glorification is the end of the Christian life. It's the kind of purpose of the Christian story. Um, but I decided to flip it uh, instead and this week do glorification. And next week we're going to look at um, union with Christ in the day to day, like the here and now and what that means for now. Like, how do we how do we live now? Because I felt like, I mean, both of these are certainly great charges as you go into your semester, or sorry, into your summers. And those of you who graduate go off into your careers and vocations. Um, but I just thought maybe ending with the union with Christ for the here and now might be a better one to end on. So we're going to focus on uh, glorification tonight. That means we're returning to uh, the, the benefits of our union with Jesus. So we've talked about adoption and sanctification and justification, and now we're looking at glorification. Um, and uh, as I mentioned just a minute ago, this is really what the entire Bible is about. Everything in the Christian story is about this. It's about this word glorification. Glorification is the goal and the guarantee of union with Christ. It's the goal of our union with Jesus, and it's the guarantee of our union with Jesus. Now, what exactly is glorification? What do we mean by that? Because that's just basically an old theological term. What do we mean by that? One simple way to think about it is, uh, actually an old theologian put it this way, 
He says, uh, justification means that you have been, past tense, have been saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification means that you are being saved, present, from the power of sin. So justification, have been saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, are being saved from the power of sin in your life right now. And then glorification, glorification means you will be saved, future, from the presence of sin. Glorification means that you'll be saved from the presence of sin. So it's a world without sin, a world made totally new. But here's a here's another maybe more helpful way to kind of think about it. Um, you know, we all have like those feelings, those particular moments when we do certain things. It's like, oh, I just love that feeling. So it could be for you when you have washed your bed sheets, which is probably only the girls on this call. Guys probably wash their bed sheets only when they go home and their mom washes it for them, which shouldn't be. It's really gross. You've got dead skin, like all just woven into the fabric of your sheets. And anyways, that'll change as you get older. But like you wash your bed sheets and then you get in and like the smell and they're so soft. And those of you who like to like tuck them in tight underneath the mattress, like your feet are kind of just nuzzle. You're like swaddled like a baby. It just feels amazing. You know, like, you know, that feeling, um, you know, the feeling like when you're done with the last final of a semester and it feels like I've just conquered the world and I'm totally free to do whatever I want to do, at least for a few days. But it kind of feels those few days feel like an eternity. Like I'm done with anything that I needed to get done in life. Um, or the feeling when you like, uh, like in the new operating system on your iPhones, they have like memories uh, a year ago today when you like swipe, I guess, right uh, on the home screen. And it'll have like a picture from the past uh, or it'll have like a little video. I actually stumbled across this the other day of a trip that I took to Montana with some some close friends, some campus ministers going fly fishing. And like when you watch those videos, it's like even better than the memory of it itself almost. Um, even the bad parts, like they could be documented in the video and you're just like, oh, it's amazing. Uh, or for you like pen geeks out there, pens, uh, you know that feeling when you get a new pen and a new notebook and you just feel like a prolific writer, like you are sure to be a great novelist um, and the world is just at peace inside of you, your whole and your handwriting is just fire, you know, just so Muji pens, boom, nailed it. Nailed it, Erica. Muji pens. I got plenty of other uh, options. Oto, I've got that pen. Oto is another great, if you, uh, not to elevate one culture above any of the others, but from my research, it feels like uh, Japan has the pen market on lock. So just give them your money and buy their pens. Uh, so yeah, pen geeks, you know that feeling. Uh, here's a feeling that none of us want to admit, but we all know it's true. That feeling when you're in a restaurant and you ask for a straw and they bring you a plastic straw and you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing because paper straws are going to burn in hell one day. Uh, we need to save the world, but paper straws are terrible. Um, or the first sip of coffee in the morning or Morgan. And when I asked her this question, she said she loves the feeling when you're running late and then all the lights turn green when you're in the car. I don't have that feeling much because I'm always on time, but 
anyways, we all have those feelings and you know that feeling. Well, that's kind of like what glorification is. Uh, Or perhaps as humorous as some of those feelings are, perhaps those feelings, they suggest that you were meant for a world that is made new, a world that is made right. Like those feelings, those little kind of funny feelings and those kind of insignificant moments, they're like little windows in the world of, of maybe a world that you were made for, a world that is to come. Glorification is that world, according to the Bible. The, the, the doctrine of glorification is the idea of, of what the world is going to be through the redemptive work of Jesus. So to be even more specific about glorification, our glorification is when every benefit uh, of our union with Jesus is fully realized and fully perfected. And this question of how long, O Lord, will I struggle with sin? And how long, O Lord, will injustice be uh, committed throughout the world? Like our union with Christ is fully realized and perfected, our adoption and justification and sanctification. Uh, To use the language that we use throughout this series, uh, glorification is how our union with Christ attends to every longing that you have. So we talked about adoption, the sense of alienation and estrangement, being an orphan and being invited into the family of God, becoming an adopted child of God. And then justification, this, this longing question, am I okay? And Jesus tends to that longing through union with him. And then sanctification, will I ever change and be what I feel like I was created to be, not just in terms of my talents, but morally, uh, emotionally, relationally? And glorification kind of takes all of those, encompasses them into one, and uh, attends to every one of those longings that we have. So we're going to look at just two aspects tonight of uh, this made glorious union. The first thing that we're going to look at is the hope of glory. And the second thing that we're going to look at is the need for glory. The hope of glory and the need for glory. So first, the the hope of glory, all right? And bear with me because we're going to get kind of in the weeds a little bit here. Um, So you may not walk away going like, oh, I totally understand what Paul's saying, but I I hope it makes you chew a little bit. And here's why I want to get in the weeds. Here's why I like to get in the weeds of the Bible. The Bible is, uh, I believe, God's word, right? Which means it's authoritative. It, It is the norming norms. It shapes everything that we believe and everything that we practice in this life in terms of faith um, and uh, our, our vocation and calling in the world. Like it just, it's the norming norm. It shapes everything. And so when we want to understand um, even our union with Christ, like we just go down to the nitty gritty, like what exactly is this? Um, and why do these specifics matter? So let's look at the hope of glory. Uh, in Colossians 1.27, we didn't read that tonight, but Paul says, uh, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This hope 
that Paul's referencing here is the first thing that we're going to look at. Another way to think of it is this. Christ in you is the guarantee of glory. I said earlier that glorification is the goal and guarantee of glory. So Christ in you is the guarantee that glory belongs to you, that glorification is yours. So what is this hope? What is this guarantee that we have in our union with Jesus as it relates to glory? What is this hope that we have in our union with Jesus as it relates to glorification? We've looked at, you know, what is what is our hope in sanctification and adoption as it relates to our union. Now we're going to look to uh, glorification. And I want that question to really sink in because, uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, I want us to be precise and specific because it's not enough for, for us to just say that, that Jesus is my hope. He's my hope. Um, that is certainly true. He is our hope. Right, But the Bible gives us specifics about why he is our hope. Okay, And so, uh, particularly from the angle of union, that's what we want to ask. How does union with Jesus specifically function as our hope of glory? How does union with Jesus specifically function as our hope for glorification? Everybody with me so far? Nod, kind of at least understand the words coming out of my mouth. Now, there's a lot that we could say, right? Um, a lot that, that could be brought into that conversation. But we're going to look at just one really important thing that Paul highlights in 1 Corinthians that we read, that Christine read for us. Um, and I want you to grasp, as, as we kind of look at a few of those verses, I want you to grasp the logic of what Paul is saying, the rationale of what Paul is saying, because the hope of glory is found in that logic and what he's saying, why he's arguing the point that he's arguing and the, and, and the way that he's arguing it. So I'm just going to start by reading two verses from this passage. The first verse I want to look at is verse 14, and then we're going to look at verse 16. So verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. All right. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now drop down to verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So here's the first thing that Paul is saying in verse 14, okay? Here's the first thing that Paul's saying in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, you will not be raised from the dead. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, you will not be raised from the dead. Your faith right now is futile. It is blind faith. It is pointless. You might as well go and do all the things that you really want to do because it's futile if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Okay, now let's go down to verse 16. The second thing that Paul is saying in in verse 16, listen to this carefully. If believers are not raised from the dead. Jesus was not raised from the dead. If believers are not raised from the dead, then Jesus was not raised from the dead. Now, what does he do there? He flips it. He flips the rationale, the logic. First, he says, if if Christ has not been raised, you won't be raised. And then he says, if believers have not been raised, 
Jesus won't be ways. Now, why is that important? Why is that flip important? Why did Paul even want to do that? And just let's just be honest. Paul's a terrible writer. He's really hard to read. His run-on sentences are cray-cray. All right? So he's got all this weird, hard stuff to read. And uh, here's why he he makes this flip. It's not just because he's a bad writer, right? He Here's why. What Paul is saying is that Jesus holds his sheep so closely. He's saying that Jesus is so united to his people, to his flock, that his resurrection 2,000 some years ago in the past, his resurrection is our resurrection in the future. His resurrection is our resurrection in the future. And Paul is saying, our resurrection in the future is his resurrection in the past. And so what that means, here's what Paul is saying. What that means is that these are not two separate resurrections, right? But according to Paul, they are one organically united resurrection that takes place in two episodes. One organically united resurrection, one. Think union. Think of this. Union, union, union. One, one, one. Like you are united to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. So everything is Jesus, right? His resurrection is yours. His resurrection in the past is yours in the future. Yours in the future is his in the past. One organically united resurrection that takes place in two episodes. So this is why Paul can argue this point negatively as he does right there in 1 Corinthians. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised, you haven't been raised. And if you haven't been raised, Christ hasn't been raised. And his point is that this is how intimate our union with Jesus actually is. Okay, so in the midst of all these kind of deep, dense weeds that he's getting into, the point is just an intimate one. It's a relational one. This is how intimately united you are to Jesus. When you are united to Jesus, you fully belong to him. All of you, all of your experiences, past, present, and future, belong to all of him, past, present, and future. And nothing can happen to you that did not happen to him. And even more, nothing can happen to him that doesn't happen to you. There are certain like qualifications we need to make to that, but like Paul's not making them right here, so we're not going to make them right here. As it pertains to the resurrection, his is yours and yours is his, and it has to be both. Right, so this is a really difficult point. You know, I, I said we're going to kind of get a bit analytical here. So uh, this is a, a a difficult point to illustrate, but the best way that I can think of it uh, is my marriage to Holly, my wife Holly. And this is going to get super meta, but just hang with me here. My marriage to Holly is her marriage to me. And her marriage to me is my marriage to her. So like for her to be married to me, 
For Holly to be married to Chase, it necessarily entails Chase's marriage to Holly, my marriage to her. You can't be married to someone hypothetically. You can't just say, like, I'm married to Christian, like, if I'm not married to Christian, right? You either are married or you're not. But if we are married, if Holly and I are married, what's true of her is true of me. And what's true of me is true of her. So her joy is my joy. And my pain is her pain. And my debt is her debt. And my fights are her fights. And her success is my success. And on and on it goes. And so it is in our marriage to Jesus. Even when we think about the resurrection, his resurrection is ours and our resurrection is his because we are united to Jesus. Okay, so Paul drives this point home that he's making in in verses 14 and 16 and those other verses. He drives this verse or this point home in the last verse that we read in verse 20. Um, I'll read that for us really quick. He says uh, in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he's he's stating definitively, Christ has been raised. We know that. And then he uses this weird word, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says that Jesus has been raised, and further, he's the first fruits of that resurrection harvest. And this is where we actually get into um, that organic unity that exists between Jesus and and his people. Paul's actually pulling from old language in in Exodus where the the first fruits of a harvest were brought as a tithe, as a contribution uh, to God, as a way of worship to God. And Paul's relating that here in even greater ways to the resurrection. He's saying the resurrection harvest is is one organic whole and and, uh, the first fruit of that harvest is Jesus. But there is also a full harvest to come. That's just the, 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 the tip of the iceberg because the harvest is full of his people who are awaiting their guaranteed resurrection. So this, at least is one of the things, this is what Paul's saying, this is our hope of glory, that Jesus was raised, and if he was raised, then we are. So our hope is concrete. That's our hope of glorification. Now, really quickly, why does this matter? Practically speaking, why in the world does this really dense theological thingy matter? Right? There's a a lot of things we could say. Here's the only thing I'm going to mention. This matters because it means that you... Luke, you, Emmeline, you, Grace, you, Sarah, everybody on this call, you have an unshakable assurance that if you belong to Jesus, eternal life with him and with his world is yours. An unshakable assurance. The hopes for glory is yours, period. And so why does that matter? Why does this unshakable assurance matter? Well, it matters because of everything. It matters because of everything. It means this, right? 
What does this even mean? It means that you can rest. You can rest. It means that you can stop working your butt off to impress God. It means that you can stop wallowing in shame because of your ongoing struggle with sin. It means that you can take heart in the midst of any trial that comes your way, whether you succeed or whether you fail in that trial, because you have an unshakable assurance that your life is not your own and will not be decided by your worst decision. Your life belongs to Jesus because he is yours and you are his. You belong to Jesus and he is resurrected and you will be resurrected. That's your hope of glory. That's the hope of glory is our union with Christ. What's his is ours. Okay, so we've got this nice big Bible point that Paul's making here. And hopefully you followed that somewhat. But we've got this nice big Bible point that, that Paul says. But here's, here's the real question. Here's a real question. Why do I even want this? Okay, why do I even want this? I'm using you know terms like glorification. And what even is glory? Right? I sound like... Uh, Russell Crowe in in the Gladiator, where like you know, glory will be ours, some kind of Roman soldier. Um, and if we're being really honest, you know, with questions like this, most of us have ideas about heaven and about glory. You know, you can use those terms synonymously that are at best horribly boring, if not I, if not outright just undesirable. So. Like, who looks at the world today and says, and everything that's going on in the world, who looks at it and says, you know what we need? You know what this world needs? We need to go float in the clouds with an old bearded Jewish man and listen to a bunch of harp music on Spotify. Because that's like functionally what we're kind of taught to think heaven is, like in the clouds, like in white robes and... And like, let's just be honest, that doesn't help anybody. That's not desirable. I don't want to go there, okay? So if you're on this call tonight and you're like, I've never really gotten into this Christianity thing because heaven just sounds boring. And honestly, when I look at all the problems in the world, it doesn't look like it helps at all. And you're right, that doesn't help anybody. That vision of what heaven supposedly is doesn't help anybody. And unfortunately, that's what many of us have been taught to think about it. It's this like boring, cultish, thing. But it's not. Okay? The new heavens and the new earth, glory, right, is not. Because the glory the Bible speaks of, that's a glory that we all need. That's a glorious reality that we all need. That is a, uh, there is a deep existential longing for that thing. That deep, all-encompassing existential longing that you have, the Bible's word for that is you're longing for glory. You're longing for glory. So we have this need for glory. We're going to jump over into the book of Revelation now. And let me just say this. The, the book of Revelation is, is really weird, okay? It's, it's different. 
and it's a it's a vision, right? It's an it's an apocalyptic vision, and it's a vision of the world that is to come, right? The world that is to come when Jesus returns, and it uses tons of fanciful language, and it uses tons of imagery to capture your imagination, just so that you can kind of have a taste of the depth and degree of God's redeeming work in the world. And here in chapter 21, we are given this image of the new heaven and the new earth. We are given this image of glory, and this is what uh, we're all longing for. This is what Paul says that we long for. This is what's written on every page of the Bible that we all need. And this is what you are guaranteed in Christ. So let's just read this passage again in Revelation. Um, We're going to do 21, 1 through 5a. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now that doesn't mean for those of you who love the ocean, there won't be an ocean in heaven. The sea is, is, is um, uh, often used as imagery for like death and destruction in the world and chaos. That is no more in the new heavens and the new earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Here's what this is. Okay, this picture here, this is our union with Jesus made complete. This is our union with Christ fully realized and perfected and finished. And from the beginning of the Bible, the whole point of the Bible was for God to make his home with us and for us to make our home with him. And here we have it. This is what is coming. This is what... Uh, the world to come looks like and feels like. And here we have all the ingredients of a good home and we have all the ingredients of our union with Jesus. So we have here our adoption, our, our adoption as complete. So God will dwell with us and God himself will be with us. He will dwell with us and he will be with us. We have our justification right? Am I okay? Our justification here is complete. The removal of the presence of sin, right? Every tear from every wrong committed is wiped away. And the death that the fall brought into the world is no more. We are okay. Justified, justification made complete. We have our sanctification, 
Our sanctification is complete. It says he is making all things new. That means that you and that me, we will be made new into the image of Jesus. And so if I could give you a word for what this what this picture of the new heavens and the new earth is, what glory is, it's a world at rest. It is an Aubrey at rest. It is an Ellie at rest and a Sam at rest and a Chase at rest in a world at rest in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. We have a need for that. We need that. So let me just close by being really practical here for a second. In this past year alone, just in this past year, we have experienced a pandemic that has killed, the last I saw I think was over 600,000 people just in the U.S. alone. Uh, We have dealt with the residue and destruction of historic and systemic racism that's still present in our society today and trying to figure out what that is, where it is, how to fix it, how to change it, how to repent of it. We have dealt uh, with a country. This is just our country, right? We have dealt with a country that is totally divided along political and and racial lines. So much so that it literally cost people their lives as a deranged mob stormed the Capitol. Whatever you're, who, I don't care who you voted for, but these fault lines in our country like costed folks their lives because someone was so convinced that that's what they needed to do. And so police officers were killed and even, you know, the folks that, some folks that stormed or they were in the mob, like they were killed. We have seen... Uh, the death of just major cultural icons and sports figures like Kobe Bryant. I mean, we, we forget that was just like a year ago. And even none of us have ever met or hung out with Kobe Bryant. And if any of you ever grew up playing sports or grew up in California or Southern California, like the like his kind of imprint on our childhoods, it was just like it rocked us to see somebody like that that was a hero to so many die like so prematurely with all those other people and his little girl. We have seen just in this past year alone, domestic violence increase and homelessness increase and marginalization increase everywhere in just in Oakland and Berkeley, all due to the pandemic. Access to education just totally cut off because of the pandemic. And we have seen cities virtually burned to the ground in protest for lives that are taken unjustly. And that doesn't even scratch the surface. I didn't even like mention anything that's going on in any of your lives individually. But here's the point. The world is full of brokenness because the fall and sin have destroyed everything that it touches. And the reason that we protest this The reason that we fight against this and we fight for peace and for justice is because we know that the world was meant for something else. It was meant for a Revelation 21 world. A world at rest. A world secure in the arms of Jesus. A world that is flourishing in the beauty of his goodness and intention for creation. 
and a world that is dwelling in harmony and in love with our neighbors. We were meant for glory. We have a need, uh, we have a deep need for glory, and in Jesus, we have it. We have it. Let's pray. Lord, we pray and we ask that you would um, bless the reading of your word and the studying of your word and that it would bear fruit in our lives. And we pray that our union with Jesus would become more beautiful and more believable than anything that vies for our heart's affection. May we sink our emotions and our intellect and our lives deep into life with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.